0: Uh It's all about the Benjamins, baby. Well, not quite. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Bitcoin is back. If it ever left, doubling in value in recent months on the back of a deepening COVID-19 crisis and fears of currency debasement and inflation. And while no one really knows where the currency is headed, after all, wild fluctuations continue to plague markets, sparking concerns of bubbles and even price manipulation, people seem to be familiar with the story behind the cryptocurrency. But are they? Well, I'm delighted to welcome Ben Mezrich onto the show with our co-host Amaya Scarry to take a deeper look at some of the more colorful moments behind the craze, and what lessons it may hold for the future. Now, Ben is one of tech's most influential writers. He's the author of The Accidental Billionaires, the nonfiction account of Facebook on which the movie The Social Network was based, and has followed it all up with an aptly named book entitled Bitcoin Billionaires, the story of how Tyler and Cameron Winklevoss bet big early on Bitcoin and how it paid off. Now, it's a really interesting read, and Amayas and I thought that with all the volatility and risk in the markets, it'd be fun to have him onto the show and get his perspective on what's happening now in the sector.
1: So, Ben, thank you so much. Welcome to Fintech Beat. Hey, thanks for having me. This is fun. Ben, you have written a really fascinating narrative and you've centered uh, Cameron and Tyler Winkelvoss as the central characters. But I want to start at a different place. I want to start from what might just be promotional ad copy for your book, which is that, but I'll start there anyway. You say that you've really come to believe that Bitcoin is an important part of the future of the financial system. And as a layperson coming from the outside, I'd love for you to explain just why it is that you've become convinced this is part of the future.
2: Yeah. So, you know, I didn't go into this believing anything about Bitcoin. I knew nothing about it and wasn't really that interested in it. But in researching it over the past couple of years and spending time with all of the big players in it and sort of um, looking at the philosophies behind it and what it actually is, I've become a very big believer that Bitcoin is going to be a part of our lives and more and more important um, as both a store of value and eventually and potentially as a currency. But I'm more and more interested in it as where it stands as a place to put value um, that is going to be safe, that is going to be part of the future that's made for the world we actually live in now and not the world we used to live in. Um, I've become a big fan in uh, in the ideolo- ideology behind Bitcoin, the idea of something that is transferable over the piping of the internet uh, that is, uh, you know, limited, not just scarce, but fixed. Um, and in many ways, it's better than gold. I think it's, you know, becoming cliched to say that, but the reality is it is gold, but better. Gold that you can carry around with you um, in your phone. Uh, what What is better than that? And there's no middleman, you know, there's no People um, people are the flaws uh, in, in most things, um, but something that is based in math um, makes sense in a world that is more and more futuristic every day. I mean, we live on the Internet. Everything is virtual now. Why isn't money? Um, and, you know, you can look at where Bitcoin is today and where it was, and it is a very different animal today than it was when it started. You know, it isn't really a form of currency right now. It's much more and more like gold every day. Um, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that, you know, it's become useful as that. And it's going to continue to go in that direction.
1: Yeah. As a, as an investor, I've been quite skeptical of uh, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. But I think you raise a, an interesting point, which is this it is, comes to light um, among a community that I would describe as sort of paranoid libertarians <laughs> right and yet as it grows there's a part of it which is just purely speculative and there's clearly a lot of fun to be had with pure speculation uh, certainly when the the chart is both jagged but generally up right. and but there's also more of an emerging market use case where the level of distrust it between government and citizen or government and wealth holder is both much higher and potentially just more rational Um, to be distrustful. So what are you seeing as you say, like, you know, it's different than it used to be? How much of this is driven by um, use cases where, as you write about in your book, Cyprus really does take a significant store of value from the national currency, from the banks, and how much of it is driven by a more generic sense that everybody in the world should be owning something that is like gold? Right. Well, I think, uh, you know, you raise a whole bunch of good points there. First of all, you know, Bitcoin started
2: in this crazy place. It was anarchists, libertarians, people who distrust the government, people who were uh, fugitives in some cases. These are the people who started Bitcoin, who found Bitcoin at first. These are the people who are now billionaires today because they're the only people who recognized what this could be. And maybe they came from it, came to it from these crazy places. Uh, But as we move forward into where Bitcoin, you know, is now, um, you're seeing everyone is a little bit crazy, right? The whole world has gone a little bit crazy. Um, And we saw this first in Cyprus, but then we saw it in Venezuela. We see it now and again in Russia and China, and we see it now in America. And the reality is, is that the things that we took as bedrock before really aren't, right? And we're all starting to notice that now. I mean, how could you not? I think you could look at what's happened in Bitcoin in the last two years, and it's directly related to the chaos in our lives. You want something that doesn't feel like it's shaky, right? And it's weird. It's very weird that we're looking at Bitcoin now as something that seems more stable than the U.S. dollar. But the reality is, if you look at what Bitcoin is and how it was designed, it ought to be more stable than something that is built around the U.S. military or is built around you know any government anywhere. Um, so yeah. you know it's it's an interesting point, but I do think in a lot of ways Bitcoin has grown with the way we perceive our world now, and and that's why people are running to it. Um, it's always been seen as a hedge, right? It's a way to hedge against chaos, against things like that. But as as we move forward, I think more and more people are embracing that.
1: Yeah, I've always wondered about the logical fallacy in that hedge, right? In other words. For, bit, for gold to be valuable, for ownership of Bitcoin to be valuable, you need to believe that the world is sufficiently bad, and yet the internet works perfectly.
2: Right, right, right. Well, we, we take the internet for granted right now. And as I, I, I as I say, you know, the only way to stop Bitcoin is to turn off the internet. And there are countries that can do that, right, in their own little, little pond. Um, but the reality is the internet is like water now. It's like air. It's something that we need to survive and we breathe on. And if that's the case, then we have to expect the world to continue in that, in that realm. Um, now, yeah. gold is a perfect example. we go back and forth about this forever, but there is no reason why gold is more valuable than Bitcoin. There really isn't. Um, you can't give me a logical reason for that. It has barely any use. Um, it's shiny. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's great. Uh, we can make jewelry out of it, right? But it's only valuable jewelry because gold is valuable, and it's only valuable because we say it is. Uh, Bitcoin is the same thing, and yet it has use that goes way beyond gold. I can't send you a piece of gold over your phone, but I can with Bitcoin, and I would argue that's more useful than what gold is. And so, you know, the whole argument can come down to what is Bitcoin worth, and why is it a good store of value? And you know, logically, it it makes a lot of sense. But you know, uh, you know, you're right. It's 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 a hedge against a shaky, chaotic world. Um If that world disappeared tomorrow, Bitcoin would disappear tomorrow, but so would gold.
1: So um this really articulates an interesting point about the people who came to Bitcoin early because simultaneously, I think they 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 probably feel like they were geniuses who saw the truth before others did. And yet it was partly because they had this deep distrust about what others of us might consider reality right. that allowed them to see this bitcoin truth and then, the, the culture builds on itself, et cetera. So what do you make of the mindset, both analytically or psychographically, of the people who came early to, to the Bitcoin crisis? Yeah, I, this is my favorite part of the story. This is why I dove
2: into it. I mean, these were the outcasts, the rebels, the people who were you know living in their mother's basement, in one case, one of the characters I write about. I mean, these were the people who who were fumbling around the internet because they were into sci-fi and they were into all of kind of these weird, nerdy things. Um, regular people with regular jobs had no interest in Bitcoin. Silicon Valley had no interest in Bitcoin. But in, in no way, to me, does that lower the importance of Bitcoin. Here today, people in government saying Bitcoin is used by criminals or, and this and that. You know, in a lot of ways in America, everything that grew into something big was originally used by criminals, right? I mean, the criminals come to it first because they're the ones in the underground looking for angles, looking for something interesting, looking for something that works. In this case it was libertarians. It was people who wanted the world to not be in someone else's control. They didn't like authority. They were looking for something that freed them. They wanted freedom. And and the reason I wrote about Bitcoin was the same reason I originally wrote about Facebook. I looked at this and I said, here's a revolution happening. This is all about freedom and democracy and and changing the world in this very big way. That was the ideology behind Bitcoin. So yeah, these people were libertarian, crazy anarchists, you know, fugitives, people running around. But the reason they dove into it was because of this ideology behind it. Because they'd read a lot of science fiction and in science fiction, everyone used credits to pay for everything, right? You read your Asimov, you know, they're all using Bitcoin. Um, And so that's kind of what, what drew these people to it. And that's what drew me to the story. But we get to the next step when, when the other people start coming in, when the guys in suits
1: show up and that's, you know, what my book is all about. So the Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss are the sort of central characters in your book, but, but reading it, I was most drawn to Charlie Shrem, yeah. because Charlie Shrem is the way you tell the story. He's, he's so in need of acceptance and um you know he's got such challenges with alcohol and substance abuse and so i'm i'm interested just tell us the story of charlie shrem and and how's he doing now i mean that i you know i i i'm young enough to be both somebody's son but also somebody's father and i i read the character of charlie shrem from both those perspectives and and i i leave the book really being worried about the kind <laughs> of about well also just about the craze Of this incredible wealth from an incredible contrarian belief, and what that can do to a person's mindset.
2: Yeah. So Charlie, you know, grew up basically in his parents' basement. He was in this Orthodox Jewish Syrian community in Brooklyn, New York. It was a very um, uh, difficult upbringing in a way. You very insular. You couldn't date outside of it, and he had no outlet to the world. So his outlet was computers, and so. One, you know, night on his computer in his basement, he fell upon the white paper, Satoshi's white paper, learned about Bitcoin and thought, well, this is my ticket out of the basement. And he ended up starting one of the very first companies in Bitcoin, um, BitInstant. It was the way you could buy Bitcoin. Because at the time, buying Bitcoin was very hard. You had to buy it through these sketchy overseas companies, Mt. Gox, which was named after Magic the Gathering card game, where you'd, you'd wire money, you know, Western Union money right. to Japan. Or you had to
1: start your own node. You'd right, have exactly. to operate so, a Linux server. So you know, Charlie's idea was
2: we'd start a company where you could buy Bitcoin. We'd buy Bitcoin and you could buy it. And we'd set up ATM machines. It was the idea. And the Winklevoss twins were kind of one of the first investors in that, as was Roger Ver, who is this libertarian anarchist, fugitive, <laughs> I don't know if he's really a fugitive, but he's living overseas, because he had been in jail um, and did not trust the U.S. government, so Charlie was this kid. He was 18 years old, and he fell into Bitcoin. And at one point, one third of all Bitcoin was bought through Charlie Schramm. Wow. I mean, he grew to that level. He was a Bitcoin celebrity. Um, but he made mistakes. He was caught up in the lifestyle. He ended up living above a nightclub, partying. You know, becoming the king of Bitcoin, throwing money into the air. Um, the Winklevoss twins were trying to get him to go straight laced to be a CEO, to be the guy in a suit that he had to be, while these libertarian people were pulling at him to go, you know, live in Panama and, and, and become part of sort of the free world of that Bitcoin was supposed to be originally. And Charlie got caught in the middle. He ended up making some foolish mistakes. He allowed uh, a drug dealer to essentially get Bitcoin from him and use it to buy drugs on Silk Road. Um, so when Silk Road got taken down, the trail led right back to Charlie. And Charlie was the first person put in jail for essentially selling Bitcoin. Um, and he he was threatened with many years in prison. He ended up getting two years in prison, um, this young kid who, you know, made a mistake. And, you know, he knowingly sold Bitcoin to someone um, who used it to buy drugs. So it wasn't like he didn't know what was going on. And that's what he got nailed for. Um, But it's it is a very uh, appealing story because you do empathize with Charlie a lot as a young person. You know, any of us could have gotten caught up in the craziness, and when when you start, you know, living large and living above a club, and you've got you know enormous amounts of money. Um, So he went to prison. He came out of prison. Actually, Charlie is doing well. He's down in Florida. Um, He's uh, he's one of the OGs who knows Bitcoin so well, and as Bitcoin has regrown. You know, I believe he's regrown some of his fortune. I don't know numbers or anything like that. Previous to, you know, he he lost or he says he lost all of his, his fortune and his money when he went to jail. Um, Bitcoin is an interesting world in which you never know what somebody really has, right, right? right? So um, I don't know what Charlie, you know, is worth, but I know Charlie is. He's come to terms with what he did and who he is now. And I like Charlie a lot. I think he sort of rebuilt himself um as as a bitcoin maven i mean he knows more about this than than many people um but he and the winklevoss twins are from two very different worlds and that's what fascinates me about this story um the winklevoss twins you know the in the social network were the bad guys they were the guys in the suits and ties who were chasing you know (laughs) the karate kid around the gym right but uh, but in reality um they're really really smart guys who are very much understand economics and, and how this works and when they stumbled into bitcoin they were looking for a way in. Um, first, they bought an enormous amount of Bitcoin, uh, as many as 200,000 coins at $7 a coin, an incredible investment to make. But they also bought into Charlie because they believed that Charlie could build something really, really cool and that what was missing was this way of buying and selling Bitcoin. You know, Since then, of course, they've built an exchange, Gemini, and they've, they've done very well. Um, but it's two different ways of looking at Bitcoin. You have the the libertarian anarchists on one side, and then you have the guys in suits and ties who wanted to be part of the New York financial system, who believe that it should be regulated to some degree, that there needs to be safety, that it has to be a, an actual sort of uh, a part of the financial market and not this sort of thing that you use on Silk Road. Um, and they saw that very early on. And that's sort of the drama of,
1: of my book. Yeah, and so the, the Winklevoss twins are these fascinating characters because, as you say, it's hard to believe that lightning would strike twice, right? right. So in, in The Accidental Billionaires… Also, by the way, if you look at the Winklevoss twins, it's hard to believe they even exist. I mean, these guys, <laughs> they're like something
2: out of Greek mythology. Uh, they walk into the room and it's like, oh, my God, this, this is yeah. they're, they're made for Hollywood. But, yes, you, you, they, they, they were struck by lightning twice. I mean, they were there at the origins of Facebook. You know, they say that Mark stole the idea from them. Mark certainly, you know, worked with them and ended up building Facebook um, and some of the elements of Facebook. You could trace back to what the Winklevoss twins were doing. They settled with Mark. Mark ended up giving them sixty-five million dollars, um, but they took it in stock because they wanted to be a part of Facebook, and that ended up being a very smart decision. And they ended up with five hundred million dollars, and they wanted to become investors. They went out to Silicon Valley, and nobody would take their money because. They were the enemies of Zuckerberg, and everyone's end game in Silicon Valley was to sell their company to Facebook. So the Wiggleboss twins went to Ibiza to party on a beach, as one does, and uh, they ran into a guy who said, "Have you guys ever heard of Bitcoin?" And that's literally how it started. And they suddenly were part of a whole other revolution. You never see this people who are struck by lightning twice, who are at the the helm of two revolutions, and they dove in head first. And you know all credit to them, they stuck with
1: it and built, uh, helped build Bitcoin to what it is. And and Gemini at this point is, is a real company. One thing as a person who was at college with the Winklevoss twins that I would observe about them is that they were always a cartoon of themselves. So they had matching Range Rovers with one license plate that said Winkle and the other license plate said Voss. So even before they became these larger-than-life characters. Right. They were larger-than-life characters. Right.
2: But I think, you know, listen, if you're a six foot five, identical twin Olympic rower, you don't really have much choice. You're going to stand out. Like, no one is going to walk into a room and not notice you. So these are guys who were born to be larger-than-life. And I think uh, what's important to know about the twins is, you know, they definitely started on third base, but it's still hard to make it home. You know what I'm saying? They saw... A lot of people who are in their position would just row off into the sunset, you know? Right. They got a whole bunch of money from Zuckerberg. Uh, they could have been done, um, but that's not who they are. They needed to build something, something. and prove and, something. Uh, and I think, you know, people come to me all the time and like, you know, well, they got lucky, right? They bought at $7. But who among us would buy at $7 and not sell at $14 or $100 right. or $1,000 or $10,000? Right. That's not luck at that point. At that point, you believe, you truly believe and there's not a lot of people who hold to that level, right? I, I, most people get a double or a triple or a tenor and they're done. <laughs> but if you really believe in the system and what Bitcoin can be, you stay with it and and I think that's that's
1: something interesting. And they also represent in this story and also in the company that they've built a synthesis between the this must be regulated for it to succeed and for it to achieve its, its hopes and ambitions, such as as much as a cryptocurrency can have hopes and ambitions. Right. And they are outsider enough to believe in those hopes and ambitions, which is an unusual combination. It absolutely is. They are. They're a mingling of these two
2: things. They're people who come from, um, you know, they come from a very uh, state background. They're, they're the guys in suits that you would think they are. But at the same time, they believe in this sort of libertarian ideals to some degree. They are believing this is democratizing and freedom and that. But they also see the need for regulation. They came into this saying that. They came into it building Gemini or, or, or the way they tried to rein in Charlie uh, by saying, you know, this it can't be a free-for-all. This can't be Silk Road. Um, you know, it's interesting when you talk about Silk Road and, 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 and what happened there. Uh, the true OGs of Bitcoin Um, think Silk Road should never have gone down. You know, they would like to see that stuff all be legal. Uh, But you have people like the Winklevoss twins who come in it very differently and say, this can't just be that. This can be way bigger than that. Bitcoin can be part of the mainstream, but it has to shed that. It has to shed the dirty background of where it came from. Um, or, Or, you know, people like my mother will never accept it, right? People like maybe yell it. I don't know. People won't accept it if it stays Silk Road. Uh, it needs to be regulated. It needs to be something that, that a regular person in the Midwest can feel safe buying. Um, you, know, you can't be wiring money to, to some offshore account to buy Bitcoin. It has to be regulated, it has to be safe. Um, so that, you know, that's a very different, when they came into it, nobody else was thinking that way about Bitcoin. Now, a lot more people, and you're seeing institutional money, you're seeing funds, you're seeing people who want it regulated. Um, and I think that's an important important thing to think. You know, important moment in, in Bitcoin, and that's the reason you know it's at thirty forty thousand now and not three thousand anymore. It's because more and more
1: people are accepting regulation. Yeah. So Ben, it's traditional in interviews uh, with you to note that you've written about Facebook, which is one of the most valuable companies in the world. You've now written about Bitcoin, which is this fantastic investment. And even, frankly, your book about uh, card counting in Vegas presages a huge boom in the popularity of gambling. So it's traditional then to ask you what you're working on next right? as, well, a, as a way to speculate. So
2: many people wealthy. <laughs> it's funny. I've always said some hedge fund should just sit me in an office and just walk by the door every now and then ask what I'm working on. Because uh, I have many, many books. I wrote a book about CRISPR technology before, before – CRISPR was big called woolly um i've written about so many things that have become uh online gambling i wrote that big online gambling book straight flush before online gambling became a thing um you know i don't have my next big nonfiction book i've been playing trying to get elon musk to sit down with me on, on twitter i keep i think i
1: think you're late book. to the party on that one
2: i think uh, exactly. elon musk no, has I've, already made a lot of people a lot. lot of yeah i i think that You know, it's a good question of what I'm going to write about next. Um, I have a a Da Vinci Code style thriller coming out next fall, which I'm writing the movie for Steven Spielberg, um, which was a um, serialized novella I wrote for the Boston Globe over this pandemic, which is like a thriller. takes place. It's all about the American Revolution, really fun stuff. But in terms of what my big next nonfiction is, I, I don't have it yet and I'm searching for it. And maybe one of your listeners will send me it. <laughs> but I'm always, my eyes are always open. I'm always looking for that that revolution, and I want to tell the origin story of something that's going to change the world. Um, and if people get rich off
1: reading my books, that's good too. <laughs> so um, let me close with one final question, which is, what was the story that you had to cut for time? What was um, the the greatest Bitcoin story? Oh that my god! Didn't there make are
2: it? So many great Bitcoin stories. You know, there are so many people who who could have been billionaires today but aren't. You know, I hear these stories every single day. You could do a whole book on just people who could have been rich. Or (laughs) people who've lost their keys. Lost their keys. How many of us went and researched our old computers wondering if there was any, I mean, there used to be websites you went on that were like faucets that just poured Bitcoin onto your computer, remember? I mean, Bitcoin was worth nothing back then. I myself have have missed out many a time on being paid in Bitcoin for things. but there was not, you know, no specific stories. I think you could, you could, you know, write about Charlie's adventures more and more, or, or you know, international fun things that have gone on. I mean, it's it's a cast of characters, you know, the Bitcoin world when it started from 2010 to 2015 were some of the craziest, you know, wildest people um, that you could write about. Um, but uh, I don't know, I, you know, I'm sure there are plenty of people with, with great stories to tell about Bitcoin.
1: Excellent. Well, Ben, we really appreciate you uh, stopping by our virtual studio and for sharing these stories. And um, well, I'm sure we'll have a link to the book in the show notes, but we really appreciate all these stories and, and the, the pathos that you bring to this uh, crazy cast of characters. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I had a great time.
0: When I was in graduate school, one of the most interesting books I'd ever read was called Imagine Communities by Benedict Anderson. It's a book that highlights the fact that socially constructed communities, imagined by the people who perceive themselves as part of that group, can become powerful and cohesive political agents. Now, the analogy has its limits with Bitcoin, but when listening to the conversation with Amaius and Ben, I was struck by just how far that idea can go when you think about it in the context of money, and then run that money on top of digital rails like the blockchain. The interesting question, of course, will be whether or not all that imagination is being put to the right uses. And Tyler and Cameron Winklevoss, along with so many others, have certainly demonstrated ample amounts of creativity. But with all the humanity, passion, crime, anarchy, and, well, jostling in the sector, the jury is still out as to whether or not Bitcoin will be truly valuable from a social perspective. Will it, in short, inspire the best of our angels or enable the worst of our demons? Like everyone else, I'll be waiting to see if Bitcoin's proof of work can prove its metal. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer, D-R. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.